Hello, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Kumar Surab. He co-founded and was VP of Engineering at Sumo Logic from 2010 to 2015. Sumo Logic is a next generation log management and analytics company, which IPO'd recently this September at a two plus billion dollar valuation. Currently, Kumar is acting CEO and one of the co-founders at Logic Hub, an intelligent security automation platform that combines alert triage, incident response, and threat hunting. We're real excited to have Kumar join us today to share his experience on what gets founders into trouble. Kumar, welcome to the show. Thanks, Oleg. Awesome. Well, to get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and we can go from there. A little bit about myself. All right. So for 20 years, I have done startups, as you said in the introduction, co-founded and ran engineering and operations at uh, Sumo Logic. Before that, I was lucky enough to join another startup even before they had a 1.0 or a single customer and saw that startup also go from you know, almost nothing to an IPO. And then it later got acquired by HP for one and a half billion. And that was ArcSite. And the current company that I'm working on is Logic Hub. And, and what we are trying to do here, what we are doing here is teaching machines to do security operations. So it's like an autonomous security operations, intelligent automation, using that to do a lot of things that are done in threat detection, alert triage, incident response, helping people do those much, much better. So that's that's a quick intro on myself. So lots of experience starting companies, being around companies and those companies getting acquired eventually. So, you know, you must be doing something right. But today, so let's start with this. As a CEO, you have to determine if you're actually solving a customer's pain point or not. Can you tell me about how you've determined this in the past and and if you would do it differently today now that you have experience starting companies. So this is about problem discovery. Absolutely. I think that's a that's a fascinating topic, right? And I think I would I would be lying if I said, you know, I have found the perfect answer. Everybody has a different journey, a different perspective on it. But there are a lot of co- common patterns that can be applied. And a lot of what I'm going to say is probably much more applicable towards enterprise software companies rather than consumer. And I would not, I would not assume that much of it may actually apply even to consumer. But, but I think having, worked, having seen ArcSight very early on, uh, joining ArcSight very early on, joining co-founding Sumo Logic and then co-founding Logic Hub, that is a very, very key part of, of what problem do you pick to solve? And so at the very beginning itself, right, the first startup that I did, I picked, picked a problem that I personally had, that I was personally running into. But after a year of doing that, I realized that the market for that kind of a product is, is very small. Right. And so, uh, and then a year later, I started Sumo Logic and the market for that is big. Right. And with, uh, with Logic Hub also, the market is quite big, right? Almost at the same level. So one of the things 
that when you're picking on a problem as a founder, it's great that you're picking up a problem that you feel passionate about the, the one that you have felt, but you probably want to balance that and you probably want to look at that is how big the market for that is. And, and you can make, in judging how big the market is, that is a very nuanced thing. We, we actually talked to a lot of people before I started Logic Hub doing the company and there is one bit of it there is advice and problem statement that you get which is very hypothetical right and and i think we built the product for 18 months and we worked with uh, one or two customers very very closely but what you realize the real lessons of learning start coming in when we started selling the product right and when when we started asking people for money that's when you start getting the feedback. So it, there is one lesson that I would say, and, and I have heard this advice before, and for people who don't truly get it, it might seem a little bit counterintuitive and a little bit hard, and you might wonder, okay, how can you actually do that? But you can actually sell software before it's built, uh, and, and you should, right? And that's... That's one thing that if I'm doing a startup again, it's almost like if you're coming from a product and engineering background, which which I, I have come from, right? A lot of people think that you actually have to build a product or even build an MVP. And I think in hindsight, that's not required. In fact, in fact, you're you're delaying a lot of learning by waiting to build something and you're you potentially are wasting a lot of resources in building something that that might not actually at the end of the day sell, right? So that's that's one one key thing. The sooner and sooner you get into that sales motion, and if you can visualize something, and that's where people say you know lead with the vision, right? And you can actually sell the vision. I'm not trying to uh, like you don't you don't start selling flying cars, but you should. You should be able to sell, especially if you're coming from product engineering backgrounds, if you know you can build a certain kind of a product, and it might take you nine months, 12 months, 15 months to build the product, but there is no reason you can dis not describe that, that vision of the product that doesn't yet exist, but in your mind it does, right? And if you spend a weekend, you can actually put a pretty good slide deck that describes what that product would look like in 12 months. And here, here comes a little bit getting over the initial hesitation. You can actually start asking people to buy that, right? And, and if you have something, if you're solving a real pain, you get into, you might actually get like a conditional PO even, where people will say, yeah, I have that problem. And if you build this, uh, and the advantage for them is they get to influence how that gets built, right? So use that to your advantage to say, not only I'm going to build this for you, but it's, it's, it, I'm going to listen to you, right? And in enterprise space, people, if you find a problem that someone has that you're promising them they can solve and they can believe you that you can solve that problem, you can actually, that's how we got our early customers. And, but we waited 18 months to do that. And I think, you know, you can fast forward the journey, you know, from day one.
Very interesting. Well, Kumar, you're kind of fast forwarding this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. I have a whole section uh, about sales by technical founders, and I, I think we should come back to that. My new question is, when do you go from discovering a problem to actually selling a solution? Is it kind of like, is it really stages or, or is it, do they bleed into each other a little bit? What's your experience been with that? I think it's a continuous process, right? So it's not like you start discovery, you stop discovery. Four plus years into the journey, we, you're constantly doing discovery, right? Um, it's it's almost like, you know, um, I, I think I've seen a picture somewhere where you can see an island, right? If you're going sailing or you're on a boat and you see an island over there, you're driving towards that. And a couple of days ago, I was actually in, in near Santa Cruz kayaking, right? And and if you have kayaked, right? And if you're solo kayaking, right? The, the, the guide will tell you is that you point the nose where you want to go, right? And, and that's, that, that, there's such a very, very simple thing. But then you have to, as you're going there, right? The currents are there, the wind is there, right? So it's not always perfect, a straight line towards that. And there is traffic. So you're trying to navigate that, right? So you're constantly trying to adjust. Early stage, like the three things about, right? The problem, discovery, product, market, fit, and selling. One of the things that you have to get really, really good at is discovery and and getting in a conversation with the customers. And this is something that I feel like one of the things that I've learned most in last two plus years is the ability to have a conversation with a prospect, with a customer and, and, and learn about the pain points that they have, how they are going to buy it, how can you how can you position your solution as the best alternative if it indeed is a is a better alternative for the person you are talking to and all this entire process actually requires a really good amount of discovery and the more and more people you talk to right because market is not a monolithic market, right? Market is made up like there might be 200,000 companies in the US itself that might be your target audience. But it's not like everybody has the same problem. And, and so the more and more people you talk to, the better and better idea you get of a more general sense of what the market is. So having a lot of conversations, what I've seen is that the more and more people I talk to, the better and better uh, sense I get of what the market is. So customer conversations are incredibly helpful. And, and one of the things a lot of people do and they don't realize it, and I, I, I used to not realize it, is people try to sell uh, before, before they do discovery. And, and salespeople know this, it doesn't work, right? But, but if you have never sold before in your life, it's a very common mistake that I see is that people are selling a lot, but, but what they haven't done yet is they haven't dis done a discovery. They haven't talked to the person. Maybe it's not even a fit. Maybe what you do doesn't help this person. Or, uh, so understanding what people are looking for is a critical, critical aspect of that. And I, I think that is, again, not just helps you with selling, but, it also helps you find product market fit 
um, much more quickly and, and it reduces the chances you'll get wrong. And the reality of it is you might think that you have found a product market fit, but it might be a local maxima. And so I'm using like machine learning terms, but really sometimes you've got to explore outside of that local maxima. And what you'll realize is that if you ventured a little bit outside of that local maxima, there is another maxima that's better than that. And then you explore that and bit by bit, you end up at another place that's an even bigger one. And this is the advantage of, and, and this, is, this goes back to the point that you don't stop doing discovery ever, right? Because the markets are dynamics, uh, dynamic, people's needs are dynamic. You might be solving a small section of it, but then as you grow, you can, you can discover new opportunities. So keeping an open mind and and learning from these customer conversations is critical in bo- not just selling but actually finding early product market fit Let, let's dig a little deeper on that discovery process what kind of questions do you ask when you're in one of those conversations with a customer to try and you know uncover the next nugget of information that you're looking for so i think my first step is to understand the person a little bit better what do they do? What is their day-to-day role? So kind of trying to, and not as spending a whole lot of time, but in a couple of minutes even, or five minutes stop, you can actually figure out what this person does, right? And especially if you're, if you're targeting a certain persona or uh, talking to someone who has a certain title, you kind of know what they do. But still hearing that person talk about gives you a glimpse into their mind as to what the priorities are. For example, I talk to uh, CISOs, uh, Chief Information Security Officers, all day. There are probably like 10 different kind of CISOs, right? And, and if you let them tell you about themselves, you'll realize that there are 10, different, 10 or more different kind of CISOs. And they have different things that they are thinking about. Some people can be thinking about, okay, how to manage my board. They, they're pretty high level and, and leadership and things like that. And some people can be very, very operational. Some people can be very compliance driven. Some people could be like, hey, I'm very excited about how do I apply AI to cybersecurity, right? So these are the kind of things that tell you about the person. So almost always, you know, I start with that. But then uh, from there, you're trying to hone in on a need, right? What is the problem? Like the act of buying a product or a service and deploying it in enterprise is a change, right? Is a change from a status quo. Their status quo is do nothing. Keep doing what they have been doing, right? So so this person, you hope that sooner or later is going to make a change by buying your product or services. Nobody changes anything without a reason, right? So everybody has a reason. So a little bit of the discovery is, what is the reason? Why would they want to make a change, like considering buying your product or services? So understanding the person's motivation, understanding what they value, understanding why they would go through. There is a cost of change, right? They They have to stop doing something, time and resources, all of that. So if you understand the motivation and the need very, very well. So that's the first discovery. Now, the other part of it is a lot of people think they need something. 
but it can branch into two or three things. One of the techniques we, we do is after every discovery call, if I speak to someone for 30 minutes, right? And this is inside baseball a little bit, but after the call, we will, we will we'll grade them A, A minus, B, and C. C is like, you know, not a fit. It's like we just didn't... B is like, yeah, it is a fit, but it's not a very strong fit, right? They have the need, but the need is not big enough that they are going to do something in the next six to nine months. So this is the... So what I'm, what I'm talking about, there is quite a bit of literature. I think IBM uh, discovered this and formulated this in like 1970s, if I remember correctly, 30 years ago, or, or maybe uh, a little bit later. It's called band qualification, budget, authority, need, and timing. Uh, but the most important part is need. But the need, you might find two people who have the need, but you know that one person is going to buy, is going to do something, either buying or acquiring your product or somebody else's product, but they are going to do something in the near term. And the other part that you can also figure out is what is the intensity? Is like, is this person hair on fire or this is just like a nice to have for them? So again, the person might have a need, but there are different attributes to how strong that need is. Timing, intensity, all of that, you want to discover that early on. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I've heard of the BANT framework, but uh, it sounds like you're you're taking it even a step further and kind of grading those, which is really cool. Next, let's talk about product market fit. Once your problem hypothesis uh, has been validated, you know that the problem exists, you know that the need for the solution exists. The next step is finding how your product satisfies the market demand. This is also called product market fit. Talk about your journey finding product market fit for your first and second businesses and any lessons you might have learned along the way. One of the things that that I I, I think in the product market, the discovery of product market fit, right? It's it's like I take take the concept of people who come from machine learning side of things. And if you have ever trained a neural network, right, the way it works is you provide some input, it provides an output. Mm-hmm. And then, but if, if your desired output is different than the output that you produced, you tell it what the desired output was, and then it learns from that, right? And that, in some senses, that's a pretty generic way learning systems operate, right? So in a startup and in the, in, in the world of product market fit, right? Asking people to buy is that process. The desired outcome is they bought your product. The, the, the undesired outcome is they didn't buy your product, right? The question is when that happens, right? Both in cases of why they bought, why they did not buy, learning from that is very, very important. And now learning from that, one of the frameworks that have used is you can start figuring out and sometimes people intuitively know this and whether you're methodical about it or not or you just know on a gut level you can you can almost start boiling down the key reasons why people buy or do not buy and and you can if you have 60 conversations you can literally go through every every one of those 
every one of those conversations you had that you try to sell and if you're successful or not successful it really doesn't matter you can figure out what did they really care about and here is the part so you can figure out that you know this pool of 50 people that you talk to there are five or six things that almost comes up again and again and it might be a list of 31 but what you'll realize is that most people really care about these five or six things And now, once you come up with that, trying to, you can actually use those five and six things to carve out a little piece for yourself. So you can segment the market by saying, you know, I'm I'm not going to be good at all these six things. But if you're good, if, if anybody really wants the number four thing and wants the best at number four, I'm their guy. So now what you have done is you have segmented to a smaller market. And and as a startup, right, you do not have you have limited resources. So so this is a way by which you can you can take a very big problem, which is like win the entire market segment and dominate and be the biggest player in the category. But what you're really trying to figure out, you're trying to figure out that one trait that people would value most. And you are saying, I'm going to become the best at it. And that is a journey that, you know, there isn't the other part that I learned from that is if you're number two, number three on any one of those, it it is a sharp fall off. If like one of the things I repeat, like the number two price in sales is zero. You don't get anything, right? I, I think most of the sales, enterprise sales at least, right? There might be some other areas where there is some second prize, but not really. So I think you have to literally be the best. And and it's not that you think it is the best. It has to be best in a way that the customer thinks it's the best, right? And you can start getting that feedback, right? People will start telling you, that I really like this part about your product. You guys do this much better than everybody else, right? And so when you hit that point, it's almost like a tipping point. And you can you can feel the difference on the left side versus the right side of it because people will start noticing that and will start giving you the feedback back to you. And then you can actually use that insight and you can use it in positioning uh, at the earlier. You can even use it in qualification. You can actually look at people. Are you really interested in number four? Or, or are you interested much more in number one? Between one and four, which one do you value more? And maybe your competition is much better at number one. And you know that even if you get into a fight with them, into a trial with them, you're not going to win that, right? So, so it's about it's about segmenting the market, creating the differentiation, and becoming the best at that differentiated position, right? It's a combination of these things, and and you know you rack these up along different attributes, along different dimensions, and you end up that overall your conversion rates in the sales funnel, when you talk to people, there are two things we track. Out of 20 people that we talk to, how many people actually want to try the product? And once someone says, hey, I want to try this, what is our close rate or, or win rates? And, and if, you, if you've, we have followed this uh, process for about two plus years, and you can see drastic improvements. 
And this is a very structured methodical way to continue. This process never really goes away, right? Because if you master one, two, three, four, and five, then you ask, okay, what is now six or seven? And then you go after those. That's a lot of really great advice on figuring out and, and maybe distilling down your market product market fit. Maybe that's not the best word is distilling, but that's the one I'm using. So you've given us a lot of great advice for figuring out product market fit. Do you have any advice on, you know, what kind of traps to avoid? You've told us kind of what to do. Uh, is there anything that you shouldn't do when you're figuring out product market fit? That's a really good question in terms of what not to do in product market fit. I, th I think there is a common pattern that I see. There are like two ends of the spectrum and neither of them are really good place to be. One end of the spectrum is people expect the customers to tell them, you know, whatever you want to do, right? You're, you're kind of following whatever the customer says. And what happens as a result of that, that you're not building a product on a, I don't think that is a great way to build a product because you get pulled in so many different directions and you're, you're solving the problem in a very shallow way. You're not digging deep enough. And, and you're not building, customers are always, I mean, the classic thing is if you ask customers what they want is like faster horses, right? There is some truth to that, right? Because customers are limited more often than not, they're limited by what they see. And on the other hand, you have, especially for people who come from technology and engineering background, and I'm guilty of that, they're love, in love with the problem. Right. In the love of a problem from their perspective. Right. And, and it's like a book. Right. If you're looking at from one side, you are seeing the front cover. The other person is seeing the back cover. Right. It's the same thing, but there is two completely different views of that. So for many times, what I've seen is especially the more technical founders, they're looking uh, at the problem from a builder's perspective. What you need to look at it from, and that never works, and you only figure out a year later that you have built the wrong thing, right? What you are super excited about, but for some reason, nobody else is getting excited about it. But, but if you are aware that there, there is that bias that you have, that it's your perspective, which is not necessarily, unless and until you're building a product for exactly people like you, that might be a different case. But more often than not, you're building a product for people in general are different than you. And especially in enterprises, right? We build, uh, we build product for uh, cybersecurity teams, right? And my background is software engineering, for example. And I, have, I know security domain, but I've, I haven't been a CISO or director of information security. So their perspective on the problem is much better. So... One of, the, one of the things I keep in mind, I listen to customers about the problems that they're having and the needs that they have and their view of the problem and the need far supersedes my own perception because they are much closer to the reality. Now, where I think we need to step in as a product team is to solve the problem and go beyond what a customer is imagining. Once you see the problem, that's where innovation comes in, right? And, and true, most of the companies, right, iconic companies, there is always, I mean, I'm always fascinated about, there is always a nugget of an idea 
that is just so remarkable and different. And once it is there, it, it seems fairly obvious, but for a long time, nobody thought of doing it that way. And that is where I think the innovation part comes in. So listen, listening to the customers for the problems, but innovating on the solution side, I, I think it marries the best of both worlds in my mind. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a path I tend to take is listen very closely for what are the pain points, what are the needs that people have, but then delight them almost with, with, with an even better way to solve the problem and, and collaboratively working with them. And that process is, is a lot of fun. I think this, this relates back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about selling products, talking to customers before you actually build something. So let's go back to that idea. And I guess the question is, you said yourself, it's important to sell things before you actually have the product, but that's lost on most people that come from an engineering type of background. Why do you think that is? I think there are two reasons for that. One is the assumption that people will say no and you don't people don't even ask right people like instead of asking they just assume the answer is going to be no and when you start asking right you, you get surprised that you actually don't get a no and here is the part there is there are ways in which you can go and ask and have that conversation and that makes a ton of difference right? What I have found is that if you're trying to sell something and pitch something, that doesn't quite work, right? On the other hand, if you're trying to solve a problem for them that they have, and you can bring something to the table that helps them solve the problem better, faster, I think you can make that work, right? So so approaching it from, a, you know, a much more I think the part that I've seen work much better is kind of talking about what problems that they have. Like, look, these are the problems that they're not solving today. And everybody has that. Everybody you talk to will have a certain set of problems that they could use help solving. And so finding creative ways to do and solve the problem. And in parallel, what you're doing, you're building the product, right? But but. At the same time, you're solving a problem, quote unquote, teaching customers, right? So you pick two or three or four or five people and you say, okay, these are, it could even be one, right? But do you say, okay, this is my teaching customer. And the give and take is that the customer has a real problem that you are helping them solve. And in the process, they're teaching you what really is a problem and what kind of solution might work what kind of features it might need, what is a core capability versus what's nice to have, what is something that they would actually pay for. All of these things you learn as part of that engagement. And, and you can start this without a product in hand, right? And the advantage of it, you can build exactly to this person's, like much closer, maybe not exactly, but much closer. This person will have an immense amount of influence which you'd be surprised, right? If you are, if you're, if someone is buying something from Cisco, it's really hard to have that kind of. I'm just picking up Cisco as an example of a large company, but but typically larger companies you don't get that level of influence 
And the startups have a big advantage in that department is, is you know, you're a small, you're nimble, you move fast. You and five other people are the entire company, right? So you can, if you decide to help somebody and collaborate with somebody, you can actually make that happen. So we've talked about the importance of getting in front of customers, you know, discovery and kind of diversifying who you get in front of because, you know, you could learn different things from different people. So I'm kind of curious to hear more about, you know, how you actually talk to customers. It sounds like you might be t- might talk to certain people on a recurring basis. Tell me about what you actually do and maybe how it's changed from starting your first company to now as far as, you know, how you choose to get in front of potential customers and, and have those discovery calls. One of the things that, again, this is, this is you know, next time I do, I, I'll do it much sooner kind of things is... Only 18 months later, we hired our first sales development rep, right? And the guy joins, and in the first meeting, he sets up 20 calls, right? So, so that was, I mean, that that was money incredibly well spent. And so, so I think if I reach out to people, even cold on LinkedIn, right? If someone says something very interesting, maybe it shows up in my feed. And I'm really genuinely curious to talk to that person about that. Four out of five times, they actually respond back. And they would be happy to give you 30 minutes of time, right? The place where people don't do is it's obvious that you're not interested in learning anything from that or collaborating from them, but you're there to sell. People can smell that from miles and miles. Authenticity and, and genuineness goes a long way, I think. And, and people generally are tend to be helpful, right? So, so I think, you know, as a founder, right, you could start out just by reaching to people directly or friends of friends. And LinkedIn is a great tool for that. And then if you want to increase the scale of that, and especially if you're funded and so on and so forth, you can even hire an SDR and have 20 conversations a month and even when you don't have anything to sell right because you can ask people for advice on what you're building what they would buy whether they would be good customer and and so it's never too early to have those kind of conversations it's important to have champions on the customer side to speak up for you when you need it how do you go about finding champions ah the champions, that's another very, very key element of that, right? So you develop champions. When you meet someone, there is just you just met someone. But along the way, you kind of, if you know what excites them and what they're motivated by, what they're looking for, you can actually collaborate with them. And, and that's how... That's how you end up building a rapport with them. And you almost get on the same page. You, they almost become like your colleagues. And social interaction, all of that goes a long way. Don't underestimate the power of drinking, right? <laughs> you can go drinking. That's a fun way to just hang out with people. And it's not all business and work that like I have people, customers, I call on weekends, right? Because that's the only time I... Uh, and they would even take a call on a weekend or they would call me on a weekend, right? So you, you actually develop a relationship and it, t- it goes on for months and years and you build those uh, relationships over time. 
but you can do that in a very 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 short span of time as well and and really uh, kind of finding that common purpose right and 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 kind of working towards that i i think is a good way and there is always a little bit of a give and take right one of the customers told me kumar if you help me once you're a vendor if you help me twice you're a friend if you help me three times i depend on you so it, it it's really like you know it's really like being there to help in what they are trying to accomplish and if the if if you can be a resource if you can be of genuine help to them i think that is one way and then there is the personal connection goes a long long way i mean meeting people in person i i love doing that even like my background personality test over time has gone from introvert to less and less of introvert so certainly a skill that you can learn and your own personality adapts over time but i do enjoy a lot of getting to know people and in person as well and that goes a long long way so it's not exactly about finding champions it's more about developing relationships meeting people developing those relationships being human so Let's let's kind of wrap up with this with this. Everybody listening to the Angel News podcast is hopefully starting companies and we hope with all of our great advice uh, from experts such as yourself they're able to scale those companies. So the idea there is, you know, the founder's role is going to have to scale along with the company. How do you operate the company and you've had plenty of experience uh, with this through various stages, you know, from a two-person company to a 10-person company to a hundred plus people. What's your experience been like? What what stages have you kind of experienced yourself? No, I think that's a that's a very, very important question, right? And I think it's always a combination of it requires a degree of self-awareness about what you what you want and balancing that with what's what's really good for the company and the team and and so on and so forth and you know it's it's almost a journey that the company is also on a certain trajectory and as people also you're on a certain trajectory so you need to be constantly looking at you know what does the company need and when you're two or five people person company the the communication is very very tight right and so there is almost like a mind meld so a lot of things organically work and people don't even realize they need to do something proactively or in some some explicit way it just starts to change though as you go from 5 7 people there there is a stage in in almost every startup i would imagine at which point the entire company can't go to lunch together but a lot of companies like if you're two co-founders right If you are going to lunch, the entire company is going to lunch, right? Because it's just two of you. And even if it grows, you know, the you add the first five six people, you're still like a little bit of saying this in COVID times. It doesn't actually make sense, but in pre-COVID days, you, all of you are headed to if it's if you are in the same space, you are having lunch. but what affords you that uh, what is really good there is that there is a lot of communication that happens organically there is not a whole lot of a structure you need and so on and so forth now as you start going from 7 to i think 25 or 30 you start needing some more structure 
And and that is where, you know, you, you have built like the first level of a structure. And then once you get past like 45, 50 people, another level of a structure comes in. And, and that's a very, very different different way of coordinating it. So we are right around the cusp at Logic Hub where we're going into like 40 to 50. And I can see it shift because some some parts that we are doing are need to scale to the next level. And then um, as you go beyond 200, 500 people, it becomes a whole lot about peoples and processes and a lot of hero type of uh, people that, that are just you know, just do it kind of mentality, right? It, it starts, there is more processes and people that you need along the way. So this is a very natural journey that I've seen again and again across three or four different startups that that happen. And I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing that comes in is people are not aware that the organization is changing. And as the organization changes, people are not realizing that, you know their role needs to constantly change and that that is one of the things where people also struggle especially if you're a founder right you start out by doing almost everything and then as the team grows it becomes more and more of a specialized role so every 6 months or so right one of the techniques i do is i just take a day or two and no meeting days, and I don't even tell anybody about it, but it's, it's just looking at your own place in the organization and is everything still in harmony or has it drifted enough that you need to change things about your role? I'm going through one right now because I'm certainly realizing that I probably have 150% of things on my plate that I need to do. And then you redefine your role to say, okay, maybe these are the things I should be delegating, or maybe these are the things that are not worth doing. So that process of reflection, looking back and reassessing once a quarter, once every six months or so, is how, you know, is one of the things that helps, that has helped me, you know, stick with a company when it's like 10, 20 people, or sometimes when I start co-founding companies, when it's two people. And then change your role along the way when the company hits 400, 500 people. And so at every stage, you're trying to figure out, do you have the right role? And many times you'll find that the people around you are also kind of struggling with the same kind of challenges is that the organization has morphed into different place and their role that was a perfect fit six months ago doesn't feel like that and helping them adjust their role. I think it, if you can do that, you know, you'll have people who will never leave, right? And, and hopefully when you start the next company, they will come to work with you. So that process is, is where it happens in practically every startup that grows. Next, let's talk about operational metrics. Uh, what are the key operational metrics to know whether you're on the right track? You know, I imagine that everybody has a different opinion on this, but uh, tell me about, you know, what you've experienced to be useful. I believe in OKRs, right, on a very high level, kind of figuring out what the key objectives are. And then many a times, right, discovering, figuring out what the top level goals are. What is the desired outcomes that you have? How do you measure that outcome? And then breaking it down into what needs to happen in what cadence, right? It's almost a structure that over time, over years, like definitely at, at Sumo and, and even at Logic Hub, right? It's, 
I actually do that for my own sanity. And uh, literally every Saturday or Sunday, one of the days, I will review that. And I, I actually, like at any point, if you ask me, I have this rule of three. I, I always want to know what are the top three things. And for the entire company, and in many ways, um, almost almost everything that actually will make a big difference can can support like three things. You don't need seven or eight or nine things at the very top. In fact, in the earliest stages of a startup, focus is a big thing, right? And by restricting yourself to, you know, top level three goals or so, it kind of forces a certain kind of discipline to say, no, I'm not going to do number nine and number 11 and number 10. And, and, and the other part that comes in is people have these objectives. They want to do something, but they don't set themselves a goal that they're going to verify it three months later or, or a month later on some period, right? So I, I still, like, that is one thing that I'm actually amazed because it comes naturally to me. I'm, I'm kind of surprised when people don't do that. Uh, but, but, you know, four out of 10 times, right, people would say, okay, I want to do this, but they have not defined how they will know whether they have hit that or not. Right? And if you can't define a metric, a way to verify it, that's a recipe because two months later, you might be thinking I'm doing great and the team doesn't understand what doing great means. So I think for me, what is much more important is not just not the exact metrics that you have, but does the team have a shared understanding of what the key goals are? What does success look like on those goals? Does the team have a discipline and a habit to kind of review those and kind of learn from those when don't happen? And does the team use, especially as it grows bigger, to kind of use that framework to prioritize what they do and what they don't do? And I think having this framework in place is probably is, is critical is 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 extremely critical for clarity for everybody doing the best they can so it, the exact metrics to a degree will change will change every 90 days even or or sometimes sooner than that so but the framework actually works quite well to help the team stay on the same page to have a common sense of purpose sounds very fluffy but, but trust me when when it yeah when, when things hit a bump, right, when a team that has a common sense of purpose will kind of work through it versus a team that doesn't will get demotivated. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the kayaking example, right? If you're pointed in the right direction and that goal is clear, then you can handle the bumps and the waves and all that stuff. Absolutely. Do you have any examples uh, of good and bad people management? I think in many ways management management without leadership right is is basically supervision right so so one of the things if somebody hasn't read a book called drive people should pick that up mastery autonomy and purpose and i can tell you that of all the people that i work with directly at logic hub every single one of them i don't want to manage 
I do not want to manage. I used to feel like I had to manage, right? And I would say it's an it's a weird kind of sentence if I say that management is a very low form of management. It doesn't kind of make sense. But what I'm the if you have to supervise people, it it's not the right kind of management. And first time, second time managers make that mistake. I, I think if you can if you can inspire people if I can provide the right context, if you can hold them accountable, holding accountability is good, but micromanaging, managing very directly without enough of leading, right? Leading versus management, right? Sometimes all you get is management, 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 but not enough leadership, not enough inspiration. People don't feel like, don't have a shared context, shared purpose, it all sounds very fluffy, but it's it's extremely, even on a day-to-day basis, extremely critical. So I think that's one of the very, very common thing that I find is that people don't have, especially in the smaller companies, right? In larger companies, you have a lot of a structure where the managers are getting trained on what management should be. So you, you make less mistakes. In a smaller companies, people become managers, but but they don't have all the support and the education and the training and the coaching to be really good managers. And that that is, if you have management experience uh, in the startups, one of the incredible things you can do to add value is to coach the managers. And that is something I take very seriously is like the management culture is how we manage, Right. It's not an ad hoc thing. Everybody manages uh, whatever way they feel. That ends up defining a culture, which becomes a hodgepodge. So I think as a, as a CEO, as a founder, right, I, I'm very deliberate and conscious of of the role managers play and whether the management style is is the right kind of a style. That's that's very very key. It matters a lot to people's happiness. People spend a lot of time at work. And there is a cliche, people don't quit companies, they, they quit bosses. And I think that's very true, right? And a bad manager can drive out really good talent before you can blink, right? So that happens. So that's a downside of bad management. Again, this is a very, very deep and elaborate topic and you can go on and on. So I'll, I'll stop. All right, Kumar. Well, we're getting near the end here. Thank you so much for doing this. You know, I've learned a lot about founding companies, working in companies, uh, lessons I can take to my own job. To close us off, do you have one last lesson, something you might tell to an early founder that's something you've learned kind of the hard way, or maybe something you've seen somebody else learn the hard way about what works and what doesn't for startup founders? Do you have uh, one last lesson for us? I think the, the the part that I find is that you are in some way you know as a as a founder right the the biggest thing that i think is is the ability founders typically feel passionate about something right and there is a reason to go and find a company and go through all the hassle of doing all of that right so there is some some passion element of that in in that right mm-hmm. but the passion is infectious and Passion, if you articulate it, if you communicate it, why you are excited about something, it rubs off on people. 
And it is the kind of a stuff, right? Startups are hard, right? Half the days, things are not going to go your way. So if you're not, if you don't love what you're doing, right, then then I, I think you're going to stop. Now, here is the thing. A founder loves the company that founded or whatever, but they, they, there is a whole team that does that, right? So, so I think one of the things that I've seen is the more and more you can share the context, the more and more you can share the passion about what you're doing, it actually rubs off on people. And it's a big, big, big gluing factor, right? And it, it, gives, it gives teams the durability, right? So there are many people at the company that we have been working with, like even before we started the company. And so through thick and thin, you know, these people stick together. So I, I think one thing that I do proactively now is, is to talk about why I'm excited about what we do. And it's, it's pretty genuine. I, if I didn't feel excited, I won't talk about it. And it's a big, uh, I, I think it's a big, big thing for, for the entire team. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that so much. We're going to end it here. Uh, before we get out of here, Kumar, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you if they might have questions? Kumar at logichub.com. I read every single email or LinkedIn. Just ping me on LinkedIn. That's Those are the two most common ways uh, to get hold of me. All right. Well, Kumar, thank you so much. Uh, if you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating if you want to support the show. Kumar Sarab, thank you so much for joining the show today. We appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Oleg. Great discussion. Thank you so much. Oh.